This is really now the third tool that we can use to help guide the use of chemotherapy, not in all patients, not in the one-third or so of triple negative or HER2 positive disease, but in the two-thirds of patients who have hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease, especially if there are negative axillary lymph nodes or if there's low volume involvement of the axillary lymph nodes. People throw the word research around all the time. Research isn't just about growing cultures in a Petri dish. It's about taking what they find in the lab and bringing it to the clinic setting and having patients truly benefit from what they've spent years developing. Susan G. Komen is the largest nonprofit funder of research in the country, $958 million and counting. What kind of an impact has that investment made? Groundbreaking therapies and treatments have helped reduce mortality by 39% since 1989. We've developed life-saving drugs like tamoxifen. We've funded 2,600 research grants in 47 states and 21 countries. One of the most exciting developments to come out of these research grants was published just this summer in 2018. Imagine finding out you have breast cancer, but chemotherapy isn't on your to-do list. I'm Suzanne Stone, and this is the More Than Pink podcast. Dr. Joseph Sperano and his team at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine just completed a Komen-funded study that will change the course of breast cancer treatment for thousands and thousands of women. His life's work has focused on developing therapeutic approaches for breast cancer, lymphoma, and HIV-associated cancers. Out of all of the work he has done, the findings of this 12-year study could have the largest impact yet. So Dr. Sperano, chemotherapy has been used for decades to treat breast cancer and all kinds of cancers. What led you to question whether or not it should always be used? Well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there was evidence from individual clinical trials and from meta-analysis of those trials that adjuvant chemotherapy can substantially reduce the risk of recurrence, including those patients who have very high risk of recurrence based on either an aggressive tumor such as triple negative breast cancer or HER2 positive breast cancer, or because of advanced stages of disease uh, at presentation such as lymph node positive breast cancer. But it also became apparent um, that even women who were at relatively low risk of having a recurrence of the breast cancer, um, namely patients who have estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative, node negative breast cancer, which accounts for about one half of all breast cancer diagnoses in the United States, that even those women derive some benefit from chemotherapy. Um, but at a population level, only about three or four out of every 100 patients that you treat who fall in that group, that low-risk group, derive benefit from chemotherapy. So we were clearly, we knew that we were over-treating the vast majority of, of women to benefit a few, and we didn't really have the tools to um, be able to more precisely identify who would benefit from chemotherapy until about 13 or 14 years ago in 2000, 
1314, when the first gene expression tests became available, that could provide not only prognostic information that was independent of the clinical and pathologic features, but also can provide predictive information about which um, patients were actually the, the ones that were most likely to benefit from receiving adjuvant chemotherapy. So that's what the Taylor X trial was designed to do. It was designed to integrate that test into the clinical decision-making process for women who had this early stage type of breast cancer, and then to act on the information that we had to direct therapy features. Those patients were randomized. Those volunteers were randomized to chemoendocrine therapy, which was the standard treatment arm, versus endocrine therapy alone which was the experimental treatment arm. So help us understand, this is what you have found is really going to redefine the journey for so many women who are diagnosed with breast cancer. Can Go back to that, that oncotype, that breast recurrent score test um, that's a part of this. How do we, how do you... How do you test for that? So someone like me, who's not a scientist, what, what are those questions and what are those genetic markers that you're looking at? Sure. So um, first of all, what we found was that for those patients who had a recurrent score of 11 to 25, that we showed uh, there was no benefit from chemotherapy in that group. This is a group of women that we would normally have recommended chemotherapy based on clinical pathologic features. So that was a real important finding. Um, the test involves uh, taking a tumor sample that's already been removed and that's normally stored in the pathology lab in paraffin and wax. That's part of routine standard medical care. And the test needs to be ordered by the physician. Um, uh, a sample of the tumor is then uh, obtained and sent to a central laboratory. Um, and the uh, at genomic health, and the uh, it's uh, uh, the, the RNA um, is extracted from the tumor. The RNA is a sort of a messenger uh, from the, the nucleus or DNA of the cell to, to the protein. So the RNA acts as a messenger to encode protein. And um, the expression of of 21 genes is analyzed, and it's computed into a score that ranges from 0 to 100, with 0 associated with a very low risk of occurrence, 100 associated with, with a very high risk of occurrence. So in the TaylorX trial, we, we um, took patients who had, we defined a low score as 0 to 10, and those patients were assigned to endocrine therapy alone, um, and patients with a score of 26 or higher, uh, and those patients were assigned to endocrine therapy plus chemotherapy. And we did that because we had evidence from previous studies indicating that those were the appropriate treatment choices for those patients with those scores. Um, for example, in patients who have a recurrent score of 26 to 100 in previous studies, we found that instead of a 3 to 4% absolute benefit from chemotherapy, their benefit from chemotherapy was more in the range of 25% or so. And it was in that mid-range group of 11 to 25, who overall had about a 5% risk of recurrence in other parts of the body at 10 years, we, we showed that uh, chemotherapy was not beneficial in that group. 
And that's a really large group of people. Right. So if you add the two-thirds of patients who have a score that's in the mid-range, um, so it's about 65%, and then you add the, um, the 15% who have a score that's low, about 15%, you're, you're generally sparing about um, 80%, a little bit more than 80% of all patients uh, from, um, from the use of chemotherapy. That is a significant saving when you talk about, just from an individual standpoint, a lot of survivors have said to me, you know, I got the good kind of breast cancer. When they talk about HER2 positive, um, I can imagine that now it's a much, it, it becomes an even much better kind if you don't even have, you don't have to have chemo as part of your treatment. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's essentially removed a lot of the guesswork involved in um, recommending chemotherapy, and it's also minimized the need to treat a large number of people to benefit a few. Now we can really direct the chemotherapy to the, to the patients who are really most likely to, to benefit from it with a greater level of uh, precision than we've ever had before. We can make these more precise recommendations and a much higher level of evidence to support those recommendations. So let's talk about the group that that is the 26 and higher or those who have um, those who have a different kind of breast cancer that that this recommendation or this study didn't didn't look at necessarily or where chemotherapy is still indicated. Tell us how, how those tumors are different or why, why that recurrence rate or chemotherapy is effective in these particular groups. Sure. So what we found was that for the patients who had a recurrence score of 0 to 10, that at 9 years their, their risk of having a distant recurrence with endocrine therapy alone was about 3%. For those who had a recurrence score of 11 to 25, it was about 5%, and we, we also showed for, for sure that they did not benefit from chemotherapy. For those who had a recurrence score of 26 or higher, all of whom received chemotherapy plus endocrine therapy, they had about a 13% risk of distant recurrence despite chemotherapy. Uh, if we had not treated them with chemotherapy, their risk of recurrence would have been more like 35%. So what, what we... What we have found, therefore, is that um, that those women who have the high recurrence score who, who receive chemotherapy still are at, have some fairly substantial risk and could potentially benefit from enrolling in clinical trials to try and further to, to further reduce that risk above and beyond the um, risk reduction that could be afforded by chemotherapy. Are there attributes that um, a non-scientist, so, so someone who's listening today who happens to be newly diagnosed with breast cancer um, or, or a part of somebody's journey who has just been diagnosed, is there something, some attribute that I could say, oh, well, I'm, I'm this age, or is there a, I, I'm Hispanic, or I'm postmenopausal? Is there something specific to that, to that 11 to 25 group? That, that are genetic characteristics, or is it something to be seen in a lab setting? Yes. Well, we can, um, 
I think, I guess, an important point is that this test, this specific test, is not necessarily interchangeable with other tests, gene expression tests, because there are several other gene expression tests available, and these tests don't always classify patients the same way. So you can't necessarily extrapolate um, the findings from the 21-gene assay to other assays as, as they relate to sparing or selecting chemotherapy. So that would be one important point. The second important point was that although in the overall population there was clearly no benefit from chemotherapy by uh, overall in patients with a recurrent score of 11 to 25, and there were 6,711 volunteers who fell in that group, um, there was an interaction with age so that for the one-third of women who participated in the trial who were 50 or under, that we begin to see the chemotherapy benefit at a lower recurrence score. And that recurrence score definitely, uh, it, it definitely starts at around 21 rather than 26. And it could go down to as low, the benefit could start at a, as low as 16. Um, the amount of benefit varies based on the individual's underlying risk. So in other words, if someone's tumor is larger or if they have a higher grade tumor, they might they might be having more benefit. How much of that benefit is actually from the chemotherapy eradicating microscopic tumor cells in other parts of the body, or how much of it is related to uh, the chemotherapy inducing an early menopause remains unclear. But even with that, um, with, with that potential chemotherapy benefit in that age range, 50 or under, we still can say with great confidence that we can spare the use of chemotherapy in around 40 to 45% of women who had a recurrent score of 0 to 15, for sure, um, because there was no chemotherapy benefit in, in those who had a recurrent score of 11 to 15, and the, and the recurrence risk is so low in 0 to 10 that chemotherapy would not likely to be of benefit. So the, the important take-home message here is that uh, for those women who are under 50, 50 or under, who have a recurrent score of a 16 to 25, um, they would need to have a, you know, a discussion with their, with their treating physician, their oncologist, their medical oncologist, about the potential trade-offs associated with chemotherapy, the benefits and the, uh, the risks associated with chemotherapy. Uh, their, their benefit from chemo would clearly be smaller than it would be from than someone who had a recurrent score of 26 or higher, but there is some benefit, and um, the degree of that benefit could differ based on what that person's underlying risk is driven by the other characteristics, like I said, the tumor size and the grade. Mm -hmm. So how do you see this change? Because really what this study is telling us and telling physicians is it's changing the way that physicians and oncologists are going to treat your cancer. How, how, does, how does change happen in the clinic setting? And do you see change happening in this, the adoption of this new um, protocol happening quickly? Or is this going to be a patient's advocate, you know, advocating for change or advocating for this particular discussion and test? Well, I do think that this has already sort of been baked into our current treatment algorithms. Because the test has been available for nearly 15 years, and 
medical oncologists, breast oncologists have become more um, familiar with the test and comfortable with the test based on their own personal experience, number one. Number two, based on the um, evidence from other clinical trial cohorts and population-based cohorts showing the robustness of the prognostic information provided by the recurrence score. And then finally, by the TaylorX result, which provides the highest level of evidence and, and the great, uh, with, with regard to the greatest level of pre- precision for the, for the use of the test. Um, and the, the notion of using a test to guide the use of therapy in breast cancer is not a new concept. Uh, we've been doing it for about 30 years uh, in terms of, select, of using, for example, estrogen and progesterone receptor expression of the tumor about 70% of tumors are estrogen or progesterone receptor positive, and we use that information to guide the use of endocrine therapy, and we've been doing that for 20 or 30 years. For the last 10 or 15 years, we've been using overexpression of something called HER2, HER2NU uh, protein or gene, as an indication of a more aggressive um, cancer that could be completely neutralized by the use of drugs that target HER2, um, and that's that's now become part of standard practice for at least a decade. But now um, we have this evidence that using the 21-gene assay can help guide the use of chemotherapy and estrogen receptor-positive HER2-negative disease. And so this is really now the third, the third tool that we can use to help guide the use of chemotherapy, not in all patients, not in the one-third or so of triple-negative or HER2-positive disease, but in the two-thirds of patients who have hormone receptor-positive HER2-negative disease, especially if there are negative uh, axillary lymph nodes or if there's low-volume low involvement of the axillary lymph nodes. So this, this third leg, if you will, this is huge because it does encompass such a large population of the women and men who get breast cancer. Yes, it's definitely a, a, a big move forward, a step in the right direction. Um, since the introduction of the 21-gene recurrence score and the other assays, chemotherapy use has declined in women who have estrogen receptor positive HER2-negative disease uh, over the last decade. It definitely has declined. Um, and it may, it may decline even further, but perhaps more importantly, it may also result in some patients who would not normally have been recommended or considered for chemotherapy to be selected for treatment based on the test. And so that will, we, I think we'll have a greater level of assurance that the right patients are being treated. And, um, and again, that we, that we have the highest level of evidence providing the greatest level of precision to guide therapy. You're absolutely right. And that's a really interesting point because it's not just about the women who no longer have to, who may no longer have to have chemotherapy, but the women who may not have gotten it in the past. Um, now we have... A better, a better ruler, a better test, a better measure, and under, understanding of who truly needs it, and to reduce that recurrence. Correct. Ultimately, saving saving her life. So, this study took a really long time. <laughs> you started this in two thousand six, right? Yes, the study uh, opened to accrual. Um, in 2006 and completed its accrual of 10,273 volunteers in um, 2010. 
it's really an incredibly long period of time. And um, we think, you know, outside, we, we talk about research and Komen is so honored to be able to fund research like this. But as patients, I know we struggle to think about, well, why can't, why can't we make progress faster? So the, the reason for this, this length of time is to follow these patients to make sure they didn't recur. Right. So there's two reasons why it took so long. The first reason is that only about 3% of patients with cancer enroll on cancer clinical trials. Um, and so that slows the pace of progress. On the other hand, we were asking these volunteers to do, you know, a remarkable thing, and that is to be randomized to receive chemotherapy or not if, if their score was in the um, mid-range. So that is just a remarkable uh, degree of altruism um, on the part of the, of, the, of the patients who volunteered and especially those who complied with their assigned treatment. Um, so certainly we can speed the process of, of, of making new developments in, uh, in, in cancer therapy by, by improving our accrual of clinical trials. The second reason it took a long time was that it took these women who have the early stage breast cancer doing really well. So we had to wait uh, almost um, seven years for enough events to occur uh, to, um, to be really confident that, um, that we were not seeing a benefit from chemotherapy. The third reason it took long is that we really took a very, very conservative approach. We, we wanted to make really sure that if we were walking back from chemotherapy, something that um, we, knew, we know was, was contributing to a declining breast cancer mortality, breast cancer death rates have declined by about 40% in the last 20 years, and we know that adjuvant therapies, like including chemotherapy, were contributing to that. We, we wanted to make... We wanted to be really sure uh, and be really confident in the results. And so I think that's the third factor that contributed to, um, to uh, taking as long as it did to get the results. But now that we have the results, we can be very, very confident about the recommendations that we, we make to, to women who have early-stage breast cancer. Certainly worth the wait. Uh, certainly worth the wait, this incredible answer. So what is next does the study continue, or what, what's the next question that I know you must have um, as a researcher? What's that next question you want to answer? Um, well, we, there are several things that are in progress. Number one, there have been other clinical trials that are either completed or in progress that may further refine our, um, the information provided by the score or extend its applicability. So, for example, there's been a trial in patients with 1 to 3 positive nodes um, where women who had a recurrent score of 0 to 25 were randomized to chemotherapy or not. Um, that's called the responder trial. So that trial has been completed. It closed to accrual a couple of years ago, and we may have a result in, in a few more years. And um, that may provide a greater level of confidence to use this test in patients who have um, up to 3 positive lymph nodes. Um, so that's that's an important finding. We already have information from another trial called the Plan B trial, indicating that if the recurrent score is 11 or less and you have up to three positive nodes, you might be able to withhold chemotherapy because the outcomes are very good. So that's one front. The second front is that we've collected the tumor samples from the from the trial volunteers, 
and we're going to be doing more sophisticated analysis for uh, mutations in the in the genes that comprise the tumor to see if we can uh, get greater insights into factors that contribute to patients who have low re recurrence scores uh, uh, for those uncommon patients who do recur so that we can figure out why these patients are recurring. So that's another important project that we are uh, working on. Well, I cannot wait to find out what those, what those answers are, and we'll have to be patient, but we can't thank you enough for the work that you've done that's going to truly change the lives of thousands and thousands of women as they unfortunately join the Breast Cancer Club, but maybe their quality of life is a lot higher because of the work that you've done. For sure, and none of it would have been possible without the 10,273 women who volunteered for the trial um, from the funders, the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, um, which provided the bulk of the funding, um, the Coleman Foundation and BCRF, which also provided critical support to uh, collect the biospecimens. Um, none of it would have been possible without without all of their support and the support of the of the research community, the physicians uh, who enroll patients on the trial, um, they're the study coordinators, research nurses. Uh, it really took a village to get this done. And um, again, the base of the pyramid uh, that was, was the, were the volunteers who, who participated in the trial. If you're a patient and you want to volunteer for a trial like this, or you see that, what's the best way to go about doing that? I think the best way is to speak to your doctor, um, your oncologist, and ask about a clinical trial. Is there, is there a clinical trial that I'm uh, a candidate for? I can tell you that many of the patients we used to enroll on clinical trials with early-stage breast cancer, we don't, we don't have trials to offer them anymore because they're, they're doing so well. Um, and so we're now focusing more on the high-risk uh, patients um, than the patients who, who now we consider low-risk even low risk with, with less therapy. Um, but certainly other, for other cancers, there's, um, there, uh, there, there may be opportunities. We've also seen pretty dramatic advances in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer. Uh, those, those patients who either present with metastatic disease as their first manifestation of, of, of a breast cancer or patients who relapse despite, um, you know, the optimal therapy. Uh, in the HER2, in those who have HER2 positive disease, we've seen, um, you know, remarkable advances in prolongation of survival from uh, anti-HER2-directed therapies. And now we're also seeing that in estrogen receptor positive HER2-negative disease with the advent of the CDK4-6 inhibitors. Uh, there's now three of those drugs that are commercially available as a result of clinical trials. And finally, even in triple-negative disease, we're now beginning to... Um, to, to make some headway there with the use of immunotherapy and um, drug conjugates, um, uh, antibody drug conjugates. So um, there's a lot of progress that's been made in the last decade, and, and um, the foundation for that progress has been the, the clinical trials. Sounds like there's a lot of promise ahead and a lot of really great answers, maybe just on the horizon. Yes, there's, there's still quite a bit of work to do, but um, I think we're certainly for triple negative disease. We 
after many, many years of frustration, we're starting to see some improvement, um, some promise. Certainly that promise has been there in HER2 positive disease for a while. And now, well, you know, we've reached the point where we can start dialing back on the therapies with greater confidence without, without compromising the excellent outcomes that we're seeing. Can you imagine breast cancer without chemotherapy? Thanks to the brave women who said yes to a clinical study that challenged so much of what we've come to consider the standard of care in breast cancer, thousands and thousands of women won't have to dream. What a gift. A big thank you to Whole Logic for making each and every single podcast happen. We record our podcasts here at iHeartMedia Studios on South Congress, and man, we couldn't do this without you. Thanks, Mike, for hanging out, pushing the buttons, and putting all of the pieces together. Thanks to our Coleman Austin team who makes everything happen behind the scenes, and mostly to our donors who save lives every day by investing in the work that we do. I hope you'll follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now even on YouTube. Tell us what you think, what you'd like to hear about. We love hearing from you. Susan G. Komen Austin is an affiliate of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation. And if you need resources, information, or you just have a comment about this or any of our episodes, reach out. You can find us at podcast at komenaustin.org and visit us at komenaustin.org. Thanks for listening. And until next time, be more than pink. <laughs>